as I've gone through this, I've noticed there are two types of bosses. And see if you can identify with me what they are. And we'll talk a little bit about them as an introduction to what we want to get into this morning. But there's two types of bosses. The first boss is the famous incompetent boss. Now we've got to be real careful here because if you're here with someone you work for, you've got to be careful how you respond to the questions I'm about to ask. So you may have to say, I've, you know, I've heard this to be the case, but I'm not saying necessarily from first-hand opinion. But what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about this type of boss? How many of you have ever worked for this type of person? All right, good. What comes to mind, what comes to your mind when you think of the incompetent individual who has the title of being your boss? Okay, they're inconsistent. They say one thing, they do something else. One thing's this way today, and if it's tomorrow, it's something different, and you never know where they stand on any one thing. And they've learned that if you don't really take a stand, you can't get convicted of it. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's, some, there's some logic to their approach to how they conduct themselves. So they're inconsistent. Incompetency. What else? They're unfair. What does that mean? Aha. That famous objective definition of unfair that all of us can relate to. An unfair boss is someone who doesn't treat me like I should be treated. Okay. I like the thought. Let's see if we can get it to make sense. Um, <laughs> carry it out a step further. What, what do you think it means to have an unfair boss? Oh, they, they know, oh, okay, they know less than you do. But then, Betsy, everybody does, I know that. Okay, so, that may not be the best definition of incompetency. Okay, but isn't, do you find that the case? They know, oftentimes they know less than you do, because why? They're usually related to somebody who put them in that position. I mean, hey, that's what people have businesses for because they know their kids can't get a job with anybody else. <laughs> so it's like, give them a job. Okay, when they jump to the conclusions. They make decisions, they don't check into it, they don't have all the facts, and then they come up and they formulate a, a conclusion based on erroneous information. All right, good. Log some of these in because we're going to see that Solomon has a lot to say about what we would view as incompetent individuals who are responsible to a large degree with our lives. You know what's interesting? I'm sorry. What's that? Yeah, an incompetent individual. <laughs> an incompetent boss is one who's gone during the week and is at the office on the weekends when no one else is there, usually just long enough to mess up everything you did for five days. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Um, let me ask you this. You've heard of the Peter's Principle, right? Okay, most incompetent people are victims of the Peter's Principle, which in English means basically what? Those of you who are familiar with what it is, and those of you who are living testimony to the fact that it's true, if you'd like to volunteer what that is. The Peter's Principle, what is the Peter's Principle? Yes, sir. Okay, they rise to their level of incompetencies and, and, and competency. In simple language, it means this. You've got a guy who could be the greatest salesman that a company ever had. Guy's excellent. He's great one-on-one. -on -one. He's an excellent communicator. He's great. He services accounts. He's a perfect guy that you'd want to deal with a specific account. 
And he does it over a long period of time, and he does such a good job at it that the, that the first time that there's an opening available for management, that's the guy you think deserves to be promoted. So you go to him and say, you know what, you've been a great salesman for the last 10 years for our company. Everything you've done, you've done fine. I mean, our customers love you. Business is going great. We've got an opening. We need a sales manager, and we want to promote you into that position. Okay? So the guy gets promoted, and he's the worst sales manager that's ever walked on the face of the earth. You know why? Because he thinks paperwork is unnecessary bureaucracy. It's red tape, we can eliminate it, and he's done it his whole sales career because he's found ways around the system. He's found that communicating with other salespeople drives him absolutely crazy because none of them are as good as he is at what he used to do, and it drives him nuts to have to deal with people that aren't as good as he used to be. So he's in a position now of authority, and every guy that works for him can't stand him. He can't stand them. And he's the worst sales manager that ever lived. And the reason he got there was because he was good at what he did. And you kind of scratch your head and you go, well, wait a minute. You know, and that's the kind of person that's the most difficult person in the world to work for. You know why? Because he hates what he's doing and he hates what you're doing because you're not doing it as well as he used to do it when he did it and he loved doing it. And you're not as good as he used to be. And he's responsible for you. So he hates every minute of it. All because he was good at what he did and he got a promotion. And they're the worst kind of people because they're the ones that usually aren't very good. The incompetent people are the ones that aren't very good at what they do, but they're good enough to make everybody believe that it's your fault <laughs> that things aren't turning out as good as they should. And, and they never play golf. They can't stand it. So the problem is that you're wrestling with all this. And I think the Peter's principle is great but I've often thought when I, when I was in business school and you hear people talk about the Peter's principle, I mean, Peter's not that big a genius, let's face it. I mean, all he did was report on the obvious. Here's a salesman who was great at what he did. We promoted him and now it's a terrible thing. And I think there's some principle involved in that. And that is that you always rise to the level of your incompetency. Well, big deal. And he's in all these lousy textbooks like he's some kind of authority on something that's going on. I mean, everybody knows it and can see it. You could have come up with it yourself. What I want to see somebody come up with is the last step before incompetency sets in. <laughs> now, there's the guy or gal who will deserve some recognition. Think about it. The one who says to you, listen, you're the best at what you do. You go one step further, you'll be the absolute worst at you've, that anybody's ever seen. And I would suggest that you just stay in sales. Congratulations, you find your niche. That's where you should be. You found it, run with it, do the best job that you can. Because if we promote you, you're going to be absolutely a disaster. Now, I know it blesses your socks off, and you'd love to have a meeting like that with a boss who realizes that if you're promoted beyond that one level that you're dead. But can you imagine? That's the person who should get some recognition when they ever discover that. See, because here's what happens in our society. You are being forced out of a niche that you're good at, all on the means of either more money, greater recognition, or because if you don't take the promotion, then you'll get lost in the shuffle and you'll never be offered it again. And how difficult it is to say, you know what? This is where I should be. I've got peace of mind about what I do. I'm good at what I do. And on one hand, 
maybe I could do better at something else. On the other hand, maybe I'm just afraid and I need to step out and trust the Lord that it's what he wants me to do. But then on the other hand, I don't want to be forced into a position because simply they're going to offer me more money or a greater position or a parking curb or whatever the benefits are in the spiffs. Or I can go golfing all week and only come in on Saturdays and Sundays. Whatever it is to be able to say, hey, this is where I should be and not feel the pressure. That's the person who is going to get some tremendous recognition somewhere along the line. Now, here's the second individual, and it usually follows on the heels of the first one, and that's the intolerant person. Does anybody work for a person who's intolerant? And what does it mean? What does it mean to have an intolerant person that you work for? You can never do enough, and you can never do it quick enough, and you never do it right. You work for somebody like that? How many of you are unemployed and this doesn't make any difference at all? <laughs> you could care less. I don't come here to talk about work. I, I mean, I'm taking, I mean, we don't talk about work on the weekends. I thought we were here to do a Bible study. Duh. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? Okay, parents can be that way with their kids. We're going to talk a little bit about that because intolerant people do come in all shapes and sizes. You know, one of the things is most times intolerant people are people who are hard driving, hard, hard driving, overachieving individuals that uh, any, no one else can really keep up with them, the pace that they go, and they just go after it. And, and their famous answer for everything is, they may not even say it, but what they imply is, do it this way. Do it my way. Why? Well, they're not going to say, because I'm the boss, necessarily, unless they've really tr stepped over the ego line there. Then they say, because I'm the boss. But see, but moms and dads, you're right, are guilty of that too. They talk to their kids, do it this way. Why? Because um, I'm the dad. <laughs> I'm the dad. Oh, good, okay. Well, I thought we all knew that, but I'm glad you finally got that out of your system. Uh, and moms do it, you know, you know, vacuum the rug this way. We, we want the lines going uh, north to south. We don't want them going east to west. It drives me stinking crazy. Why? Because that's like the universal vacuum principle, and someday you'll understand it. And we kill dust bunnies a certain way, you know, and it goes on and on and on. Well, you know, why? Well, because I'm the mom. And I've been killing dust bunnies longer than you've been on the face of this earth, and I know how to kill those babies. Okay, well, why? Because I'm the boss. See, the underlying attitude of all that is, why? Because I'm the boss. And you may work in an office where things have to be done a certain way because they're the boss. And the intolerant individual lets you know that. If you talk about golfing one more time, I don't want to hear you. Is this something... Uh, yeah, yeah. It happens in May. Yeah, right after right after the Easter Bunny in April, we got the Dust Bunny in May. Why don't you ask your wife? She's been trying to get you to hunt them down for about 35 years. So, there we go. Yeah, yeah. If you can't use a nine iron on it, you don't know what it is. That's a problem. <laughs> oh, man, I get some of my best stuff just from the front row here. 
This is great. <clears throat> what the? You know, the problem, hold on, we, oh, hold on a second, hold on. Are you all right? Someone dial 911. I know somebody's in here got a portable phone. They're the kind of, the boss that's never at the office always carries the phone around with them and pretends like they're on top of it. Um, Oh, that's what it was. <laughs> You're wanted on the first tee. What, um, where were we anyway? Why are we here? I know we're here for a reason. Oh, now I remember what it was. Are you an intolerant individual? If you're an intolerant individual, I heard the greatest story that would, maybe you can relate to this because you, you are in danger of crossing this line. And maybe you've heard this before, but the story goes that there was a foggy night at sea and the ship captain saw what appeared to be lights of another ship off in a distance. And it was heading right toward him. So the captain instructed signalman to contact the other ship by signal light and he sent this message. He said, change your course 10 degrees to the north. The reply came back, change your course 10 degrees to the south. The captain responded, I am a captain, I'm the boss, change your course 10 degrees to the north. The response came back, I am a seaman, first class, you change your course 10 degrees to the south. Well, the captain's furious because he outranks a seaman first class, and he sent it back and he said, tell him this, I am a battleship, change your course 10 degrees to the north. The reply came back, and it was the last one, I am a lighthouse, you change your course <laughs> 10 degrees to the south. See. That, that is the intolerant person. The intolerant person is ready to run their ship to the ground and they don't heed any of the warnings. So as we go through this little exercise here today, many times we fall into one of these two categories. We're incompetent and we can't stand what we're doing because we're good at something else and we've been thrust into a position that we wish we weren't in. And those are difficult people to work for and we need to understand that. And then there's the intolerant person who believes that everything has to be done one way, and it's their way. If you fall into either one of these categories, Solomon has a lot to say about what you should be aware of and the warnings that he wants to give. Whether you're a mom, whether you're a dad, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a coach, there are a lot of ways that are acceptable to God to do certain things. It doesn't always have to be your way. It's a hard thing to admit, it's a hard thing to own up to, but the simple truth of it is that you are, if an intolerant person, you are running your ship into the rocks and God wants to catch you before you hit the reef. So as we go through this, oftentimes an intolerant person is, off, always, is often an over-expector. One of the cartoons that I saw, and I didn't make a, a thing of it, but it was, there was a teacher and there was a student, they were in the front of the room, and the teacher and the student were face to face. And behind them was a chalkboard that looked like they had uh, several different mathematics problems on it. And you can see there was a lot of effort being made into solving the problems, but for some reason, the kid just couldn't figure it out. But he was struggling and he was straining and he was trying to do it. And you could see it written all over the board. And it, as if somehow in the course of this discussion with the student, the teacher announced to the, to the class that the boy should have known it. He's an underachiever, and he should have known it because they had been studying it all semester, and he, he should have known it by now. Probably even labeling him an underachiever, or probably labeling him a lazy, or that he couldn't figure it out, and he couldn't do it a certain way. And so out of frustration, but quite perceptively, the boy looked at the teacher and said, I am not an underachiever, but you, sir, are an over-expector. 
And you know, you, you think sometimes that, boy, that sure is a flippant thing to say, and you don't want to encourage that kind of response. But sometimes we need to be punched right between the eyes with the truth and the reality of a situation. Because over-expectors come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. Are you an over-expector? Does everything have to be done your way? Your spouse can't please you because you don't do things his or her way. Your kids can't please you because they don't do things exactly your way. You're a coach. Your players can't please you because they're not doing it exactly the way that you want it done. You're a teacher, and it's not being done exactly the same way. Although, for some reason, the kids can still figure out the system, and they can still come up with the right answer, but you don't like the way that they're going about it, but the answer's okay. You don't like it because it's not done your way, and frankly, it just disgusts you, and uh, lack of a better way to say it, you're an over-expector. You're an over-expector. What's your leadership style? That's really what we're here to discuss this morning. Is it uh, the same way at home as it is at the office? Do you treat your family the same way you treat your employees? Or do you treat your employees differently than you even treat your family? Does your leadership style vary according to the people that you're around, or is it consistent? You know, do your employees, do your spouse, do your children, do your friends, do your students, do your patients, do your, do your players find you impossible to please? No matter what, no one can do anything right according to your definition. It's like saying, I'm treated unfairly. What does that mean to treat you? Oh, I'm not treated the way I want to be treated. But who says the way you want to be treated is right? Who says the way you want things done has always got to be that way? And that's right. See, that's what we're looking at. And if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, because Solomon has a lot to say about how to be a good boss. How to be a good boss. If you're in a position of authority, or better yet, you know, one of the things that oftentimes amazes me is how we can look at maybe a session like this and say, boy, you know what? Well, I'm not really a boss. I just work there. I'm not really a boss. And yet realize that you are a boss, that you've got influence, that you've got authority, that you've got leadership in whatever sphere of influence that it is, whether it's with your children, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with neighbors, whether it's in an office environment or a business setting, you do have influence over other people. And if you're not, quote, the boss by recognition, you want to be, and you're, you're aspiring to be it. And a lot of times the real boss isn't the one that has the title, but it's the one that has the most influence on the people in that particular setting. And so it is applicable for you to pay attention to what Solomon has to say about how to become a good boss. So don't write it off and don't blow it away and say, well, I'm not a boss and I'm, I don't really care to be and I'll never be. But you are a person of influence whether you realize it or not, as a Christian, you are a person of influence. And you influence the world around you, whether to, a, to be attractive toward Christ or whether to turn people off to what the gospel has to say. You are a person of influence. And as a result, you need to know how to be a good boss. You need to know how to be, in other words, a good influence on the people around you. And so Solomon, Solomon is a sharp guy. And in, the, in keeping it in a business setting, if you got um, the eighth chapter open up, I was going back through 1 Kings just to kind of get a feel for where Solomon was coming from and the authority that he really had. And as, as a king and as a ruler or of a, as a chief executive officer of a tremendous kingdom or an operation, he has a lot of credibility when it comes to 
analyzing and discussing the qualities of a good boss. Here was a man when he built a temple, and these were the employees who worked for him. Listen to this. He had, uh, had 12,000 horsemen. He had 30,000 laborers. He had 70,000 transporters of stone. He had 80,000 hewers of stone and 3,300 chief deputies or middle management positions that reported to him. He had a tremendous empire, a tremendous corporate structure, so to speak. So he knows what he's talking about when he's laying out some principles of being a good boss. And he violated many of himself to come to these conclusions through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's just not a CEO giving you his point of reference, but it's a CEO who God has taken his experiences in life and through the inspiration of the Spirit of God within him, wrote down accurately the principles that God would like to see a boss demonstrate. This isn't Solomon's opinion. This isn't my opinion. This is the opinion of God himself as he worked through the life of one of his servants whose name was Solomon. So we need to get that straight right off the bat. So you can't go through this and say, well, point one is good, point four I agree with, point two and three I don't agree with that at all. Because frankly, I don't care whether you agree with it or not, this is what God's saying is true. So as we go through, we've got to always keep that in focus. This isn't the opinion of a man, but this is God himself who's speaking to us about the qualities of a good boss. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, starting with verse 1. We read, Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, Hey, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight when a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him what will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind, or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war, and the evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man, to his hurt. Let's just ask God to bless our time. Father, we just like uh, as we get together and look into your word that you would just uh, clear our minds of what we think good is, what we think bad is, what we think our boss should be like or shouldn't be like. And as parents and as leaders and as coaches and as teachers and whatever position you've given us to influence others, that we can take a good hard look to see if our frustrations are out of incompetency and being in a position that we have no business being in but have accepted it because of pressure put on us or because of maybe increased material gains. If we're intolerant people who always have to have things done our way, even though there are many ways that are pleasing in your sight, help to soften us up in those areas to see that not everything has to be done according to the way we think it should be, but there are many ways that we can please you. Lord, we just thank you and ask you to just bless our time. Give us a clear understanding of these truths and may we have the strength through your Holy Spirit to apply them even as we leave here today. And we'll just give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Number one, as we look at five qualities, you want to jot these down. If you're in any kind of position of influence, it'll be short and sweet. But there are five qualities that every one of us should want to demonstrate in our own life. And in the first verse of this particular passage, we see the first quality of a good boss is an individual who has a clear mind. 
who has a clear mind. If you look again at verse 1, he says, Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? As you go through this and you consider the question, it's a rhetorical question that he's saying basically this. Hey, who is like a person who can see what other people don't see? Who can, quote, interpret a situation and see things that, frankly, the majority of people don't see? See, a person in leadership position has got to have a clear mind to see things that the majority of people, frankly, don't see. To have a vision that goes beyond the obvious, but can look at a, a situation, whether it's in business or whether it's dealing with people or whether it's a relationship problem, uh, whatever it is, to be able to say, hey, you know what? I can see what they can't see. I can see something clearly. In fact, the definition of the Hebrew term that gives us this clear mind concept, it says to have a solution. Someone who sees through the mystery of something to be able to resolve it, to be able to solve it. The problem is that many of us, as leaders, state the obvious. We state the obvious. Everybody knows what you're saying is true. You state the obvious. Leadership does not just go along with stating the obvious. A clear-minded individual has a solution to the obvious. Do you follow that? There's a big difference than stating the obvious and having a solution to the obvious. If you're dealing with your children, to state the obvious doesn't teach them anything. To give them a solution to the obvious so that they will not repeat the same behavior again or so that they could recognize the, the, uh, the symptom or the atmosphere or the environment that will lead to the future problem, that's what the Word of God is all about. See, what God wants us to do is to begin to recognize spiritual dangers so that we're not just stating the obvious danger itself, but we're seeing the danger before we're in the midst of the danger so that we can react properly to it at the time in which the danger is presented to us. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's critical to understand this. Any idiot, and that's one of the things that, that has always excited me about a group of people like this. There's nothing worse than dealing with a bunch of young couples who have just got married, and here's the obvious. I can't believe the guy I married isn't the same guy I dated. That's, that's the wife's side of it. And the husband's going, man, you know, she's changed so much since we got married. And we went through this in our marriage series, you know, how we put on a front before we get married because that's the thing that attracts people to one another. And then when they, they get married and they're committed to one another, then they can just like kind of let everything hang as it is, so to speak, and you get to see the person that you never got to see that you were dating. And so you end up marrying somebody that you don't really know because it was a big game when you were dating. So you got all these people in one room who are sitting there making this initial discovery. <laughs> and, and, and they're all saying, I can't believe it. And then, they, and, and then on top of it, in most churches, then they'll, they'll move them to the next category and they'll say, okay, now they have kids. And so it's like all of a sudden, the next category of people is you got a woman who has a couple of kids that are toddlers running around the house, driving her absolutely crazy. She's always worn out. She's tired. She's frustrated. She's disgusted. The husband comes home from work and wants to know, gee, why don't you greet me at the door like you used to when we didn't have kids with the big hug and dinner on the table? And, you know, we can't wait to jump in the sack together. And we, man, we had a great time together. 
and she's all worn out and tired. So you got all these guys saying, man, my wife doesn't even want to have sex anymore, you know. And then you got all the women in the other corner going, man, all this guy wants to do is come home from work and he thinks that all I want to do is live to have sex with him. You know, I'm tired. I'm sick of it. Let him chase these kids around all day and, and erase stuff off the walls, you know, and, and talk like goo goo gaga, mama, A, B, C, one, two, three. You know, let him do all this stuff. And so they're all in a room together and they're all trying to deal with it together. And all the guys are going, yeah, your wife's like that too. Yeah, my wife's like that too. And all the women are going, yeah, your husband's like that. My husband's like that. You know, all men are the same. Yeah, all women are the same. And we keep them in these little clumps or clusters of confusion all their life. And we move them along in the process, and then they're having problems. And then we get the older people, and they're all in the empty nest. And they're looking at each other, and they get together and go, My husband and I haven't talked to each other in 45 years. <laughs> he never wants to talk about nothing. If the kids don't come over, we just sit and look at each other all day long. That's all we do. I just kind of got into the role. I dozed off for a second. So, you know, and, and what happens is, like, I'm sorry, but I, I don't mean to be crude here, but any idiot can state the obvious. A clear-minded leader has a solution to the problem. See, we've got to be able to offer solutions to people, not state the obvious. This world is really screwed up, isn't it? Sure is, huh? Well, what kind of solution is that? What kind of hope is that? And don't you find yourself falling into that pattern? You're supposed to be a person of influence. You're supposed to be a person who has an idea about what this world's all about, what direction it's all going, what the Lord's going to do, what the purpose of all this is, why we're here and where we're going. And, what, and, and the greatest thing in the world is that God loves you and that he died for you and they sent his son. And that's supposed to be the hope that we're to offer to people. And people say, man, what's this world coming to? And you go, I don't know. Man, talk about stating the stupidity. Clear-minded individuals don't do that. You know what a clear-minded individual does? See, a clear-minded individual has to know why. He says, a person who knows how will usually have a job. But, an individ but that individual will usually work for the one who knows why. Clear-minded people know why they're doing what they're doing. Bottom line. You get a boss who doesn't know why and there's fog at the top, man, you better hope it's not the leader of that company that doesn't know why they're in business and what they're going and what direction they have and what product lines they need to introduce and which ones they got to stop doing. And if they don't have the answers to why of anything, then you're on a ship that's ready to head to the rocks. They need to know why. Clear-minded people get clear-minded because God says, number one, is that they spend time in the Word of God. The only clarity that you ever have in life so that you don't, get, you don't succumb to the majority opinion is to see what God has to say about the direction that we should go. Great example of that, Daniel chapter 6, read it sometime, about a guy named Nebuchadnezzar who all his middle management people came to him and said, Hey, king, oh king, oh, you're the greatest, oh, 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 king. Here's what you need to sign. You need to sign this little edict here, you know, everybody should worship you, and if they don't worship you, then you've got to throw the person who doesn't worship you in, into the den of lions. That's what you need to do. And so the middle management all came to him, and a clear-minded individual would have said, hey, wait a minute, there's only one God, and that's who we worship. You don't worship me. But no, not this guy. He was in a fog, and he said, that's a great idea. I want everybody to worship me. So then what happens is Daniel ends up in a situation because he wouldn't worship the boss who thought he should be worshipped, that the boss now has made an edict that he was sorry that he ever made. 
and now has to live up to it. As if somehow he couldn't have said, hey, I, I made a mistake. I made the first mistake when I issued the edict. The second mistake is why well, I'm going to follow through on it. But he couldn't even bring himself to do that. And we'll talk about that. Clear-minded people know why they're doing what they're doing. Why are you doing it? I'll make a suggestion. Why do you do what you do with your employees? Why, do you, why are you in the markets that you're in? Why are you in business? What's the whole purpose? Why do you raise your children the way that you raise them? Why do you say the things that you say? Why do you do the things you do? Why, 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 why? You better be asking yourself that question. Why do you believe what you believe? Frustrating thing for a non-Christian is to talk to a Christian who doesn't know why they believe anything. Well, why do you do that? Because uh, we were always told to do that. That's the way we've always done it. And that person looking at you like, man, there's a brain-dead individual. Why would I want to do what they're doing? They don't even know why they're doing it. And just because they've always done it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And I'm not that stupid. Why do you go to church? Oh, I don't know. We're supposed to, I guess. Oh, really? Why? 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 we got to start asking ourselves the question, why? Why do you believe the way you believe? Well, because that's what the Bible says. You know, we had a guy, and uh, he asked a question about a business investment. He said, hey, should, we do, should I do this? You know, and people were going, no, uh, well... No, I don't think so. Well, why not? He wants to know why. Well, because I got burned doing it. Well, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It may have been the circumstances. Well, why, why shouldn't he do it? Why? Okay, let's dig into it and find out why. But not because I say why or why not, but because here's what God has to say, why or why not. And it's clear, and it's concise, and it's precise, and it's accurate, and it'll always be right. Here's what the Bible says. This is why you should or should not do it. Why shouldn't we have sex before we're married? You know, why, why shouldn't I drink? Why shouldn't I do drugs? Why shouldn't I do what I'm doing? Why shouldn't I do all these things? Why? Come on, Dad, give me a good reason why. Because. Oh, great. There's some leadership being demonstrated. Why? Because here's why. Here's what God has to say. Here's the consequences. Here's the things that will happen to you. Open it up and read it. Why shouldn't I have an affair? Well, read Proverbs chapter 5. Read Proverbs chapter 7. Here, read it and see what God has to say. Here's why. You need to know why? Don't worry about it. God wants you to know why. He doesn't want you to blindly believe things out of stupidity. He wants you to know the facts. You know why? Because the truth, my friend, will set you free. The truth of the Word of God will set you free. A clear-minded person has always got to ask the questions, why? Second, this one I'd love to see demonstrated somewhere along the line in leadership position. He says, a man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. A cheerful disposition. Wouldn't it be wonderful to work to a person who doesn't look like they were baptized in vinegar and were sentenced to life in the position they're in? Man, alive! Working for a person like that can be a real bummer. Well, I'm stuck. This is a position of man. I'm stuck doing it. I don't like it. You don't like it. None of us like it, but that's the way it's going to be. Okay. There's some fun stuff. You know what's the funny thing, though? It says, a man's wisdom, verse 1, end of the, the verse, a man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. In other words, a man's wisdom lights up his face and causes his otherwise fierce countenance to beam. There are few things more contagious than following a person in leadership who is cheerful, who enjoys what they're doing, that know where they're going, and have a plan to get there. Most people that are in leadership that are frustrated are people that don't know how they got where they're at and don't know where they're supposed to go. 
They don't have any wisdom at all. They've never sought the counsel of God to give them direction and wisdom in understanding where they're supposed to take this thing. And there's nothing to smile about, frankly, because they are frustrated in what they're doing. But I'll tell you what, man, you find a leader who knows why they're in the position they're in. They know how they got there. They know where they're taking the ship and they know how to get it there. You're going to find a company full of people who are going to rally behind them and say, let's get on with this program. This is exciting. And the same holds true if you're a mom or a dad or you're a teacher or a coach or you're in any position of influence and leadership to be able to tell people, here's where we're going and here's how we're going to get there. That's the greatest freedom in the world. And the problem is that some of the most miserable people I ever met are people that are in positions of leadership who have a stiff upper lip and they're always intense. The greatest example of that that I've ever seen in, in, in my particular life are coaches. I don't care what, what you're coaching, from the professional level down to Little League, I've never seen people more intense and stern in my life. And I'm a coach. <laughs> I had a gal come up to me, probably the greatest compliment ever. A gal came up to me and she said, and we lost a game yesterday that we never should have lost. Extra innings, terrible umpire, <laughs> bad calls, we got robbed. And in about three more days, it'll be out of my system and I'll feel better. But she came up and she said, you know, how do you stay so calm? My husband goes absolutely crazy. And it was a great opportunity to say, well, you know what? I enjoy what I'm doing. I'm excited about what I'm doing. I'm intense about what I do. But the Lord's given me a spirit that he can control what otherwise was an unbelievable temper. And he's teaching me something through all of it. And he said, you know the thing he's teaching me is that these guys, these kids are 10 years old. And that this isn't what life revolves around when you're 10 years old. But what he wants me to show him is how do you handle adversity? How do you handle a bad call? How do you handle it when it's not going your way? How do you deal with all this when there's injustice in our world in which we live? How do you deal with it? That's what he's trying to teach me. And that's what I'm hoping that I can teach some kids. So I guess that's the only way that I can handle it. Otherwise, I'd go crazy. And I was like, oh, can you talk to my husband? <laughs> she said. <laughs> and, and then he came walking over, and I know him because this kid was on my team a couple years ago, but it was kind of a funny deal. And he comes over and goes, is she talking about me again? <laughs> and he got all excited. But you know what? As Christians, let me just tell you something. As Christians, you know what I don't understand? I don't understand why we don't smile more than we do. I just don't understand it. I don't understand it. I don't understand how anybody who knows they're forgiven for every stupid thing they ever did in their life, that has come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, that knows without a shadow of a doubt because the Spirit of God lives within us and He testifies of the truth of this, that if we die today absent from our body and present with the Lord, that we know what our future holds and we're excited about it and we can't wait for it to happen. How in the world can a person who's experienced that and know that walk around like the glummest, prunest-faced individual that I've ever seen in my life and have no joy in their life at all? Jesus Christ said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly and you would think that it's like, well, when's this going to take place? Man, if you are a prune face, then, I, you know, 
Abraham Lincoln said this, every person over 40 is responsible for his own face. <laughs> That's good stuff. That's good stuff. I like that. You know, I, I don't know. It just... It gets, it gets discouraging at times to realize that we have that information, that we have that hope, that we have that joy, and that we don't share it with people around us. Hey, so you lose a baseball game. Your eternity's not based on it. So you make a bad business deal. Your eternity's not based on it. Your destiny's not decided by it. So you do something right, you do something wrong, you blow it, you make a mistake. We've got a God who's ready to pick up the pieces and forgive us and, and we can move on. If we can't have a cheerful disposition, it is impossible in this world to have one. And let me just tell you something. That's why people are buying and using drugs and alcohol at an unprecedented rate. Because their cheerful disposition has to be manufactured in an outside company but ours is from within. I'm just challenging you. I don't even want to go any further because we got some more good stuff. But I want to challenge you in two things. If you're in a leadership position, do you have a clear mind? Do you know why you're doing what you're doing? Do you know why you believe what you believe? Do you know why the decisions that you're making, you're making? Do you know why about anything? And the second thing is, I want to challenge you in the area of a cheerful disposition. If you can't smile, then you better take a self-examination of whether you've ever come to know the God you claim to know. If you can't yell amen, if you can't smile, you can't have some joy in your life, if you don't know direction that your ship's going in, then you better take a self-examination to find out if the God who the Bible says lives within you is actually there or not. Helmut Thelke wrote this. He said, should we, not, should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as are, as are the lines of care and seriousness? Isn't it only earnestness that, is it only earnestness that is baptized? Is laughter pagan? We have already allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church and cast many pearls before swine. A church, and I say a Christian, is in a bad way when he banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the Toastmasters. What is the legacy that you're leaving in your house? Frankly, you know what? I don't care if my kids can repeat one lesson or one sermon I ever preached. But you know what I want my kids to remember about me? My dad was intense in the things that he did. He loved the things that he did. And he enjoyed every minute of it. He smiled. He could tell a good joke. Marginal sometimes, but a good one. <laughs> But he could tell a good joke, and he loved life because he knew where he was going, and he knew how he got to where he's at, and he knew that he had a God that loved him. And the Bible says that he who began a good work in him is going to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. That's what I want my kids to remember about me. What are they going to remember about you? Let's pray. Our Father, as we consider the seriousness of a leadership position, Help us to understand the truth of your word. There's only one way to have a clear mind. And Solomon has been emphasizing it over and over and over again. And that there's a wisdom that is available only as we have a right relationship with the God of this universe. 
There is a wisdom that's a gift from God, James says, that comes from above and that's not of this world. And God, you're willing to give it to us as we ask of you. You give it without reproach. No criticism. Just give it to us as a gift. And it is that wisdom that illuminates our minds, that gives us a clear picture of the world in which we live. To see through things that the majority of people will never have the ability to see because it's spiritual in nature. To have a mind that's clear, that knows the answers to the questions why. Why do we believe this way? Why do we do it this way? Why not another way? To know the truth of what your word teaches. And not to counsel people out of stupidity, but out of a clear understanding of the Word of God. And Father, also I just challenge each one of us, and I challenge myself, as you consider that we should have a cheerful disposition. To have a handle on life, to know why we're here, to know that we're forgiven, to know that anything that we do will never separate us from your love that we have in Jesus Christ to know that our future is in your hands, that our destiny has been reserved and preserved by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that just simple belief in that has made us right before you. That there is a place that's reserved and waiting for us in heaven, so one day we'll be with you forever. And that there'll be no more sorrow or suffering or mourning or sadness or sickness. God, if we can't have joy knowing that, then we're most to be pitied. Help us to demonstrate that to the people we come in contact with, that we have a clear understanding of why we're still here and where we're going. That they can see the joy in our life in business situations and coaching and teaching in our neighborhoods and with friends. That they can see a joy that's missing in an empty and shallow and hollow world. And Father, we just thank you for that. And we challenge you through your spirit to continue to convict us in these two areas just this week that we can be more pleasing to you in what it takes to become what you say is a good leader. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' wonderful name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.